Good afternoon. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, October 19th, 2021, and this is KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellums. This hour, we asked best-selling author and University of Arkansas grad Ayanna Gray if anything she experienced during her time on campus influenced her new fantasy novel, Beast of Prey. I took a course um, with one of my professors, and it was called Political Violence. And it, he teaches this course um, every other year because it's so taxing for him to teach this class. And in about four minutes, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich takes us to Black Bass Dam to explain what's in that structure's future. The dean of the School of Law at the University of Arkansas will retire from that position at the end of June. Margaret Sova McKay will continue to teach as a member of the school's faculty as a professor of law. An interim dean will be named for the academic year of 2022-23. And interim provost Terry Martin will convene a committee to search for the new dean. A long-serving member of the Fayetteville City Council is leaving that position. Matthew Petty submitted a letter of resignation, writing that an increased workload and travel responsibilities will make him unable to give the council work the attention he wants to give it. Petty has served on the council for 13 years, first being elected to the council in 2008. His resignation is effective October 25th. His term lasts through the end of 2024. The seat can be filled by appointment or by special election. Sunday's testing for coronavirus in Arkansas, recorded in yesterday's report from the Arkansas Department of Health, reveals 142 newly diagnosed cases in the most recent 24-hour monitoring cycle. Two more deaths were attributed to the virus by the ADH. 8,202 Arkansans have died from COVID-19. Active cases in the state now below the 6,000 mark after a 24-hour reduction of 617 cases. National and Arkansas flags are flying at half-mast until sunset Friday in honor of the late General Colin Powell. President Biden issued that declaration yesterday morning following Powell's death. The next community cookout session to discuss American Rescue Plan funds designated for Washington County is scheduled for tonight from 6 until 8 at Elkins Bunch Park in Elkins. Elected officials are scheduled to meet with the community in person or virtually to discuss spending of the funds. A new clinic at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences seeks to help ensure quality of care for adults with a rare genetic disease. A news release from UAMS announced plans for the state's first clinic dedicated to treating adult patients with neurofibromatosis. Dr. Michael Burrer is director of the UAMS Winthrop Rockefeller Cancer Institute, which houses the clinic. He says most clinics aimed at treating the disease are housed in children's hospitals, with specialized care for adult patients significantly lacking across the country. Without having an adult clinic, they have to see and schedule multiple, multiple visits uh, in diff- with different um, physicians. And then, of course, our healthcare system isn't that smooth with having one physician communicate to another physician, so the care gets very complicated. That is exactly the purpose of the adult neurofibromatosis clinic, meaning it's one-stop shopping. It is a rare disease that causes typically non-cancerous tumors to grow on nerve cells in the body. Dr. Brewer says the new clinic at UAMS will allow researchers to discover more about the origins of the disease and how to best treat it. We're already interviewing some people who, on the lab side, are very interested in understanding uh, the relationship between the actual mutations in these genes and what the characteristics of the patients who have them. Some patients suffering more than others, and some patients having more deformities. 
other patients having more neuropathy, and that's probably related to the type of mutation that they have. Dr. Brewer says the clinic is run by neuro-oncologist Dr. Erica Santos-Horta. About 2.5 million people worldwide are currently living with the disease, which so far is incurable. And the Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team will begin the season ranked 16th in the country. The preseason Associated Press poll was released yesterday, and it includes five SEC teams. Arkansas finished last year ranked 10th. Arkansas plays the first of two exhibition games Sunday afternoon at 3 against East Central in Bud Walton Arena. This is Ozarks at Large. Black Bass Dam in Eureka Springs, one of the oldest hand-cut stone dams in the Arkansas Ozarks, is leaking and at the risk of failing, but it's also being restored. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich takes us there. Way back in 1889, citizens of Eureka Springs voted to enact a real estate tax to finance for the first time construction of a piped water system in their city for fire protection in drinking water. The new waterworks were built here in Oil Spring Gulch, a steep forested valley in a remote part of Eureka Springs through which three cold water springs surge. The springs were impounded five years later in 1894 by a 12-foot high, 150-foot wide, stair-step masonry dam, creating Black Bass Lake. Potable water was steam-pumped up the mountain into the village. A larger, more vertical hand-cut stone dam was built over the original dam later in 1914, measuring 28 foot tall by 228 feet wide. The waterworks were abandoned 50 years later when two city wells were drilled to supply water to Eureka, replaced in the 1970s by regional Caribou Water District. Scott Miskill, director of Eureka Springs Parks and Recreation, stands on a bridge over Black Bass Lake's historic spillway, today rushing with cold rainwater. Well, Black Bass Lake City Park is one of the most treasured spots for the locals especially. Uh, I hear that uh, so many comments from the locals that they love to come down here. They love Lake Leatherwood City Park and others as well, but this just seems to have a special place in, in a lot of people's hearts. Locals and an increasing number of tourists visit this remote city park to picnic, kayak, the nine-acre lake, fish for black bass, which inhabit the lake, and hike miles of trails and bridges constructed over a decade ago. You can walk around uh, the lake and find your favorite fishing spots uh, without having to uh, walk through a, a bunch of high grass. And of course, we uh, now keep that all maintained as well as possible. Uh, we've been spending time tending the trails more this year than I think in, in previous years. Visitors are barred, however, from venturing onto the dam's railed walkway or anywhere near it. The historic structure is crumbling. In 2010, city workers reduced the lake water's level to grout mortar seams on the lake side of the dam and also repaired a spillway, but there's much more to do. We hiked to the base of the dam to get a closer look at the decay and several weeks. You can see uh, where water is infiltrating through the dam in a couple of areas. 
Much of the dam face remains intact, but sections have collapsed. Piles of hand-cut stone scattered along the base. That is why uh, this project to restore the face of this dam is so important, is anytime you see water infiltrating as it is, uh, you know that uh, damage is being done uh, and continues to be done because of that erosion that takes place. Inside City Hall, Eureka Springs Mayor Butch Berry says his grandparents lived along a ridge above Black Bass Lake. So growing up, we would walk down, hike down the mountain, down to the lake and, and uh, fish and, and hunt and actually do some trapping. Over the decades, he's watched the dam deteriorate, which has long been at risk for failure, especially during recent catastrophic flood events on the Ozarks. You know, our whole premise is when the dam fails, it's not a matter of if, because it's already at this point leaking. Uh, there's water coming through the dam. Uh, and there's the main pump station for the Carroll Boone Water District right at the base of the dam. So when it fails, it's going to knock out that pump station. And that pump station supplies the water for all of basically West Eureka Springs, all the way around to the, the hospital, the Crescent Hotel. So they will be without any potable water, but they will also be without fire protection. And so we've got a, a dual threat there of uh, not having any water uh, for citizens to use for potable water, uh, but we also won't have any fire protection, and that's an even bigger concern. For a time, city officials debated tearing down the dam, not having much luck raising funding to repair it. Well, we've been looking for money for grants for at least probably 15 years. The city applied to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, as well as Arkansas Natural Resources, which regulates dams, as well as foundations. So we had uh, just been looking everywhere we could. We've been trying to uh, talk to uh, businesses, individuals, uh, corporations, foundations, anybody who was involved and concerned with outdoor recreation, hiking and biking trails, and things like that. So Dwayne, our public works director, actually found this grant. As an original waterworks facility, Black Bass Dam is under the jurisdiction of Eureka Springs Public Works, directed by Dwayne Allen. He applied to Arkansas Department of Emergency Management, which agreed to help, providing $300,000 to start fixing the dam. Well, it's a $400,000 project that we'd, we'd price, but $300,000 is from the, the grant, and then we'll, we'll, some could be in kind, and then anything over that, the city will pick up. But we're, we're wanting to stabilize it. Uh, it's, it's mitigation funding, uh, you know, it's, it's federal FEMA money, but it comes back through the state, and this is to, to prevent, you know, damages and, uh, you know, anticipated problems, and then this really meets that, that criteria. Alan says he's currently taking bids on the project. We'll, we're going to place rock in front of that dam and stabilize it and uh, mass and, and hold it in place and then and then that way we can let people you know it's closed off in front now and everything we can and the parks can take that back over and uh, beautify it so uh, we, we we like you said we'd we'd like to try to keep that original look if we could
Mayor Barry says it will take additional funding, however, to fully restore the historic dam. With COVID and the price increase of materials and labor and everything else, uh, we know that it's going to cost more than what the grant is. Uh, we've got the grant. Uh, it's $400,000, but we, we're matching it. It's 75-25 match. Uh, we've got to come up with $100,000, uh, roughly. And, you know, and we know we're going to need more than that. Uh, and so we're still out. I'm still out uh, trying to find other resources for increasing the, the monies that we can get and to support the restoration of the dam. The city of Eureka Springs has also set up, the mayor says, a special account for private donations to help restore Black Bass Dam. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The city of Eureka Springs is also thinking about the holidays. The annual Eureka Springs Christmas Parade of Lights scheduled for Friday, December 3rd, and the city's Chamber of Commerce accepting free registration for participation. You can register online at eurekaspringschamber.com or in person at the Chamber offices at 44 Kings Highway. And ahead on today's Ozarks, our militant grammarian Catherine Sherrills is back, and she is bringing with her another collection of categories. Did you know there are several different kinds of rhymes? Well, there are. We'll spend some time learning about rhyme later this hour. Healthcare workers in Maine are required to get vaccinated or risk losing their jobs. But some ambulance crews say it threatens their ability to function. We're not in denial of how serious the pandemic is, and I think that we've done it safely. The only thing that really threatens uh, the health of the public is short staffing. I'm Sarah McCammon, getting emergency responders vaccinated this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, today from 3 to 6 on KUAF and streaming on KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The Arkansas Department of Health urging Arkansans to get their flu shots this year. Dr. Joel Tumlison with the Department of Health says the state saw much lower flu rates last year because people were taking precautions like wearing masks to protect themselves from the coronavirus. This year... We know not as many people are observing those measures and are unlikely to be doing so this winter. Spacing, you know, there aren't as many restrictions, and so um, people are gathering in larger numbers um, and in closer quarters. Uh, and those are the things that we know can make this flu spread uh, more easily. And so that's the concern that this year might be worse uh, than last year. My hope is that, you know, people will have gotten used to some of these measures and will remember how well they worked for the flu last season and, and remember and going in public crowded places, et cetera. Hey, let's wear a mask. That really helped keep flu out of my house and, and away from myself as well. And so those things can be effective again. Uh, also makes doubly important to get vaccinated for against influenza this year. As many as 23,000 Americans die from the flu each year, but last year's mild flu season means fewer people have immunity to strains that could be circulating this winter. And Tomlinson says the threat could be made worse if there is a spike in COVID-19 cases. We're just now coming down out of a surge um, where we weren't even worried about influenza. It was just COVID and hospitals were very full just with COVID patients. Um, respiratory viruses like influenza, like COVID-19, like to go up in the wintertime because um, we're all a lot closer to each other indoors. Uh, if we have a really bad flu season where flu is spreading 
widely amongst people at the same time that COVID goes up as well. And we have lots of hospitalizations due to both of those things. It'll be a, a, a very hard challenge for our hospitals again. The latest guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it is safe to take both the flu and COVID-19 vaccines together. Tumlison says the ADH has not seen the same hesitancy to flu shots as it has to coronavirus vaccines. But I'm hopeful that won't be the case. People are at least familiar uh, with flu vaccines. They're not new ones. And that's a lot of people's concern about COVID vaccine is how new they are. Well, that's not the case with influenza. On average, more than 760,000 Arkansans get the flu shot each year. That's according to data from the Arkansas Department of Health. Tumlison says the department has scheduled several mass vaccination clinics at community sites throughout autumn. But there's other convenient options as well for people who don't have a primary care doctor's office or if that time isn't good. Many pharmacies uh, give influenza vaccine um, and there are lots of community events. Um, some of those, you know, have already happened, but they're, they're happening on an ongoing basis that hospitals will do them. The local health unit, along with other county leaders, will often uh, do a community event. Walk-in flu shots are also available free of charge at health units across the state. For more details, you can visit healthy.arkansas.com. KUAF is giving away tickets to see guitarist, singer-songwriter Gary Clark Jr. in concert Saturday, October 23rd at Walmart Amp and Rogers. Clark's most recent release, This Land, earned three Grammy Awards, including Best Contemporary Blues Album. Winners will be announced during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large on Friday, October 22nd. KUAF.com to register. The Autumn Gala at the Botanical Garden of the Ozarks is Thursday, October 21st at 7 p.m. This socially distanced event includes live jazz, games, auctions, drinks, and a chef-prepared dinner on the Great Lawn. Tickets are limited and available at bgozarks.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Iona Gray's novel, Beasts of Prey, is a coming-of-age story filled with those things that coming-of-age is often fraught with. Monsters. And for the protagonists in Beasts of Prey, the monsters are often literal. But there are also the figurative monsters that can torment us when we are young. The fear of failure, loneliness, and the unknown. Ayanna Gray, a 2015 graduate of the University of Arkansas, will discuss the novel, a New York Times bestseller, during a return trip to the U of A campus on Wednesday, October 27th at 5.30 in Gearhart Hall Auditorium. She graduated from the U of A in 2015 with degrees in African and African American Studies and Political Science. Her visit is sponsored by the University of Arkansas Honors College. We talked with her yesterday and asked her about the fantasy world she created for Beasts of Prey and asked if the maps included in the book help the author as much as they do the reader. It does, and I think it's it's you know par for the course with being a fantasy writer and building, quite literally building worlds out in my head. And I knew, you know, as soon as Beasts of Prey, as soon as I knew that it was going to be a book, I, I knew that I wanted to have a map, but I actually had a discussion with my editor. I said, I think we need two maps because we need a map of the continent of Ashoza where the story takes place, but we also need a map specifically of the greater jungle where the main characters, Kofi and Ekon, venture into. It's even, it's even more specific and narrowed down and um, my editor is really supportive and, and absolutely understands um, with fantasy how important those sorts of details are. And, and she she was right on board. So we, there are actually two maps of Beasts of Prey. For um, people who haven't yet read yes. the book, what can you what can you tell them about Ashoza? So yeah, I wanted 
I um, part of the inspiration for Beast to Pray came from a trip that I took while I was in college. Um, I visited Ghana, and Ghana is a relatively small country in West Africa. It's about the size of Oregon. Um, and it's this, it's this relatively small country that is so rich in every way, politically, geographically, historically. It's a country where there are deserts, on the tip of the Sahara Desert when you go up north. But then there are also lush jungles and forests full of all the animals you would expect to see, baboons, um, elephants, you know, all of these beautiful creatures. It's also a country where there are beautiful, thriving cities really small villages, palaces, and there's just so much packed into this place. And it felt magical when I went. And as somebody who's read fantasy almost, you know, most of my life, I really wanted to um, write a, write a, about a world that encompassed what I saw in Ghana. Hmm. And so Ashoza is very much like that. You know, it's a huge continent with different geographies and, and different ethnicities of people who have different religions and you know, I, I, I haven't even really. Beast of Prey takes place on the east eastern region um, of Ashoza, and so you know, this is the first in a trilogy. And my hope is that I get to expand and, and explore other parts of that continent throughout the trilogy. I, I just love this because this is the world you created, and you just said, "I hope I get to explore it." I mean, those of us who don't write would think, "Well, you control that, don't you? Whether you get to explore it or not." <laughs> Yeah, you would think so. And I say I hope because it's interesting. Like, I know that there are some writers who consider themselves architects and they make blueprints and plan everything out. And then there are some who are gardeners who plant the seeds and see what grows. Mm. Um, I am mostly architect with a small bit of gardener. So I may have a plan. And this has happened before. I may have a plan for what I want to do. And then I start writing and then come up with a totally different plan. (laughs) Um, And so even... In writing Beast to Prey sequel, which technically I've already written, um, you know, I initially had plans for what I wanted to do. And then when I got into the story and really investigated the characters, um, I realized that I wanted to go in, di- in different directions that felt truer to the characters and to the story. Um, so, you know, I have not begun to write book three. I know roughly where I want the characters to go and what I want to happen, but I surprise myself. So that's what I mean when I say I hope, because I truly don't always know. I'm speaking with Diana Gray, who is the author of Beasts of Prey, ah, a wonderful novel. My favorite character is Kofi. Um, and Kofi, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I just love Kofi. Um, Kofi gets propelled into this adventure, for the most part, because of an incident that happens when a routine task that she's responsible for isn't done properly. The consequences uh, are monumental. And this just seems like a nightmare we all have, that this one job that we're supposed to do, that we're reminded of, we don't. And then it, in this case, kind of literally blows up. And, and that is just a, a sort of human element that's in this book, this fear of not doing the right job and the consequences it has for you and your loved ones. And sure, that was intentional. Yes. I, one thing that I'm really proud of and that I love hearing when, when people read Beasts of Prey is how human and how true Kofi and Akon feel like, how much they feel like teenagers, true teenagers. Um, I think that pressure of getting everything right is especially high when you are 16, 17. I mean, it's always high, but everything is amplified when you're a teenager. Um, 
and that, oh, if I mess something up, one, one thing that I mess up could have this huge ripple effect and life is over as I know it. Um, the other character in the story, Ekon, also makes seemingly one small choice and it, it catapults him um, on a path that he wasn't expecting. And so um, it is deliberate and it is kind of a bit of me thinking back to how I felt at 17, obviously not in a magical world, but feeling like every little thing I did um, could be the end of the world or could change my life and was this big, felt like a big deal in that moment. Yeah, with Ekon, it really made me think when, when something does that he's really wanted for some time doesn't go his way, it reminds me of some of the pressures mm-hmm. that young people put on themselves to get into the college they want to get into. Mm-hmm. I, I saw oh, parallels absolutely. there, yeah. Oh, yeah, and I was going to say with Ekon, too, in his situation, he wants to be a warrior. And not only does he want to be a warrior, but he has familial pressure. His older brother is not only a warrior, but he's an excellent warrior. His dad was an esteemed warrior before he passed away. So there's so much pressure. And you think about college students, especially legacy students. Their families have a long history of going to a certain school or having a certain occupation even. And that adds pressure when you're already in a pressure cooker situation, when you have those kinds of uh, that legacy and that expectation. um, I think that's something that a lot of people relate to. You mentioned that the uh, trip to Ghana was was part inspiration. Was there anything that happened on the University of Arkansas campus in Fayetteville that served as inspiration for Beasts of Prey? Oh, absolutely. Um, So really, it's funny. My trip to Ghana was part of one of my degrees. I have a degree in African and African-American studies. That happened in summer 2014, so my, the summer before my senior year. But a few months before that even happened, I took a course um, with one of my professors, and it was called Political Violence. And it, he teaches this course um, every other year because it's so taxing for him to teach this class. Hmm. Um, and we met in Old Main Tower, in one of the towers. We would meet once a week, 10 of us. So it was a small, intimate class. And we were discussing political violence, terrorism, we're all political science, so this, so this makes sense. Um, but they were really heavy discussions because you walk in thinking terrorism is evil, political violence is evil, there's no way to justify that. But my professor was very, he is very clever and he was really good about kind of turning us on our heads and making us understand that ideas of good and evil are almost never as, as simple or straightforward as we like to think. And a lot is influenced by who's telling the story. And that that idea of moral ambiguity and moral relativism was something that had played a huge role in Beast of Prey. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, it does so much. You're right. And I'm wondering about the conversations you had with yourself to make sure you were getting that reflected in the novel. Like, it's not the same for everyone. In fact, we see a couple of incidents or episodes from different eyes, you know, as the reader, it's slightly Mm nonlinear. And how do you go about making sure that that sort of moral relativism that you're talking about comes across the pages? You know, I try very hard not to be too heavy handed and I guess, quote, preachy when I write. I write, you know, with, with goals in mind, but understanding that each reader that picks up the book is, is going to have a different relationship with the text. And that's okay. That's what should happen. Um, but I think t- telling, I think what you said before, telling stories from different points of view to help you get, you know, different perspectives and angles is important because 
Um, and I don't want to spoil it for mm-hmm. anyone who hasn't read, but we are led to believe certain things in, in the beginning of the story based on one person's perspective. And then a new perspective is added in and we get that new perspective. And then there's a third perspective that we're kind of, I, I deliberately didn't make it obvious why we, why we were getting that third mystery perspective. Um, but then toward the end of the story, it all comes together. And what I hope was that you have an ah moment, like suddenly these decisions make sense. Um, and you have empathy for, for people because you see where they've come from and you understand why they've made the choices they've, they've made. So for me, it's a, a lot of work can be done when you give perspective and put yourself in someone else's shoes for a minute. Right. And, and Kofi and Ekon, uh, these two teenagers have very different backgrounds. Yes, very, very different. And that's deliberate, too. I'm speaking with Ayanna Gray about her debut novel, Beast of Prey. The first word in the book is beast, and we have beasts in this book. How fun was it to create some of these creatures that we read about? Oh, it was so much fun. I'm a lifelong um, animal lover, but also um, someone who just has always loved mythology. And actually, as a kid, I I was only aware of Greco-Roman mythology. And so when I when I was older and I learned that actually there are mythologies, plural, from all over the world, it was like I was like a kid in a candy shop. And I learned about the mythologies across the African continent and the cool monsters and beasts and creatures, you know, fairies and trolls and ogres. They're cool, but there are so many more um, different mythical creatures. And so getting to research about them and then put them into the story, um, it, it was just fun and that's you know that's always the best part as a writer getting to put the things that you think are cool into your story i know i mean i have been a lifelong um fan reader uh consumer of fantasy and what i think fantasy can do and science fiction is the same and almost any kind of fiction is use these parameters that you create to talk about things that are completely contemporary and important. And that's certainly the case in Beasts of Prey. Oh, thank you. I'm, that's, the, you know, again, one of the goals, but you never know. Um, I think that when you have, you know, these different worlds and you, and you insert magic and let the imagination wander, it is a way to sort of convey these bigger messages about the world and, and people in it without hitting people over the head with it, you mm-hmm. know? because you're having fun on this adventure, but also learning things along the way. So I tell people, Beasts of Prey is on a, on a surface. It's the story of, um, of two kids from different walks of life who end up having to go into a magical jungle to hunt down a monster. But when you look a little bit deeper, it's just also a story of two kids who have dealt with trauma and they dealt with grief and they're figuring out where they fit in the world. And this, this adventure that they're going on is part of their growth and and learning to be okay with themselves and also face the monsters they're dealing with internally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's monsters, literal and figurative, and that's that's what really uh, makes the book. It's been a whirlwind for you, hasn't it, since the publish, uh, since it was published? It has. I, I'm so tremendously lucky that my publisher, um, Penguin Random House, um, and specifically Penguin Young Readers, they got behind me really from the moment they acquired the book and... Um, you know, I, I got to go to New York the day that the book published and, um, and you know, visit the Good Morning America crew. And that was just surreal, really, to, to be there and to meet them. Um, 
and I just got home not too long ago. I'm still technically on tour, <laughs> which is also weird to say. Um, but especially now in, in, in this, we're still in the, in the throes of a pandemic. Um, I'm really lucky and really happy that I get to share um, what was once a, a Google Doc on my computer. And it's now a fully realized book that, that um, people are reading. And it, that's, there really is no word or words um, I can use to describe how special that feels. Finally, I bet, I'm going to wager, that as a seven- or eight-year-old, you were writing, maybe not stories that eventually became Beasts of Prey, but you were thinking about and writing what would eventually help you write this novel. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, I, my first love was books. Um, and so writing and books go, of course, hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, and I think as a kid, I... I thought it would be a cool job, but I didn't think logistically about how to do it. And there were definitely kind of societal pressures to quote, find a real job, a sustainable job. Um, unfortunately, we don't we don't celebrate jobs in creative fields as much, and we really historically never never have. Um, so I think there were times when I thought that it would be cool to be an author and a storyteller, but I wasn't always sure that there was a path. Um, it took, beasts, it took five years to write Beasts of Prey, and I always tell people that this was not something that happened overnight. I absolutely worked another job while I was writing, so for a while I had two, two jobs. Um, but yeah, to, to go back to your, to your question, it, this has been something I've been doing all my life, and it's something that makes me happy. I think that's where you start, is, is doing things that you would do for free, doing things that just bring you joy, even when you're small. Maybe it's okay, or I think it is okay, to write whether you think you're ever going to be a published author or not if it makes you happy. Absolutely. Absolutely, because I certainly didn't know that I would ever be a published author, but you know what? I would be writing anyway. I always will be writing um, because it's, it's a part of me. It makes me happy. It's a catharsis. It's a way for me to reflect and comment on the world I see around me. Um, and I, I absolutely... I, I'm a big, big uh, proponent of people following their dreams and, and doing things that make them happy. Ayanna Gray is the author of Beasts of Prey, and she'll deliver a public talk Wednesday, October 27th at 5.30 in Gearhart Hall Auditorium on the University of Arkansas campus as a guest of the U of A's Honors College. The book is on the New York Times bestsellers list and has been optioned by Netflix. She graduated from the University of Arkansas in 2015 with degrees in African and African-American studies and political science. You can also attend her talk on the 27th virtually. You can see the University of Honors College website, honorscollege.uark.edu, for more information. Our conversation recorded yesterday. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Arkansans are apparently ready to get out into the nice weather. The Arkansas State Fair reports Sunday's attendance was the largest Sunday crowd in history. More than 58,000 people moved through the turnstiles. After the first three days of the State Fair, attendance pacing about 14,000 people ahead of the last first three days of the fair. That was in 2019 because the 2020 fair was scrapped because of the pandemic. And expect visitors all across the University of Arkansas Fort Smith campus this weekend. It's family weekend. Events include Friday night's volleyball match against St. Mary's University. That's Friday night at 6 in Stubblefield Center. A cultural festival Friday night from 7 to 9 in the Lion Den's Courtyard. And a chili cook-off Saturday from 11 to 1 
in the Stubblefield Center parking lot. Well, by the way, Friday night's cultural festival will feature booths and games with UAFS students representing Japanese, Latin American, Filipino, Polynesian, Hmong, Native American, Vietnamese, French, and German cultures. Listening to KUAF on your iPhone or iPad has never been easier with the new upgraded KUAF app. Download it today to access our three digital live streams, listen to full episodes of Ozarks at Large, and send your personal messages directly to the station through the new KUAF Connects feature. Your answers to questions in the app could be used on the radio. Your voice matters to KUAF. Download the new KUAF app and share your voice with us. This is Ozarks at Large. John Brummett. A political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette has had six days to consider what he calls last week's Weird Wednesday. That's when Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson announced his displeasure with a pair of bills passed by the legislature, but then announced he would let the legislation become law without his signature. Roby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, asked him what was weird about all of that. What's weird about that was just the the, the dynamic of, of what happened. Uh, the, the governor comes out and shows these bills, they're duplicates, they're four bills, but basically two pieces of legislation, House and Senate versions. And, and he tells us that they're bad bills, and he tells us with obvious firm conviction, a bit of passion, at least by his standard, these are just bad. This bill here uh, would put him, would put, supposedly opposes federal mandates on, on vaccinations, but uh, on employers, but would put our own state mandates on on employers and cost them money and put them at risk in order to in order to relieve the federal uh, uh, vaccination mandate and moreover by the very discussion that we're trying to limit mandates it goes against what is our most important initiative in the state right now he's saying which is to encourage vaccinations which are safe and which work and i thought wow and then he said this uh, redistricting uh, i was in a redistricting suit 30 years ago and, uh, and, and, and I know that uh, and I understand minority concerns about having their voting uh, uh, power uh, sapped by di- redistricting. And this is very troubling. This, this, and then he said, not go veto, not go sign them, let them become law. I thought that was, as, as I said in the column, I think in terms of newspaper headlines, having been doing what I'm doing for 50 years, governor blasts two bills, okays them was was the headline uh, i saw for that but the th- that's weird except it made complete sense to me because i have an understanding of arkansas politics over all these years which is that right now we find ourselves dominated by extreme right dominance of the legislature when the people are actually not that uh, not as conservative as the legislature uh, to the extent that they give high approval ratings to a more moderate conservative uh, hutchison as governor and, 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 but everything gets decided in Republican primaries because the state so resents national democratic liberalism. So, and then we've got a state constitution that says a governor's veto can be overridden by a simple majority vote. That's no veto at all. Uh, a veto should be a backstop by the governor and it should take an extraordinary vote to overcome the governor's veto. Basically, when you say he vetoes it by the same, and by the same majority you can override it, it's 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 a it's anemic for a governor. All of that was at play, which is to say, what seemed not to make sense on its face, made complete, perfect good sense to me. I see no reason for the governor to bring back these legislators for a day of per diem, to trump him by override and go home chortling about 
about the, the great victory for conservatism. Let's talk about fundraising reports. We got our end of the third quarter results, I guess, have been put out now. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, currently the odds on favorite to be the next governor of Arkansas with another big quarter of fundraising. Um, John Bozeman putting some money in the bank and his one of his Republican rivals, uh, Jake Beckett, didn't do terribly. Uh, but I think you still see the typical status quo in money in politics where the alleged front runners are doing just fine. Do you, do you have any expectations that money is not going to be the driver of who wins these uh, primaries? No, no. Uh, you and I had a brief discussion last night, and I and, and I think I agree with you that uh, for all the talk of social media and changing media, uh, uh, it still comes down to, to money in several respects. One is it, you give your uh, raising money is said to be the quote first primary uh, of, of, of a race for office and if you come in with a lot of money and your opponents don't that tells the voters that you're serious and that tells the voters that you've won the first primary and that somebody thinks thinks enough of you to give you a whole lot of money then even as our media habits change Social media is much more important. As someone, even an old guy like me, all my all my TV watching now is by internet streaming, uh, and and I mostly watch uh, these uh, apps for HBO Max and Amazon and Netflix, and I'm not on old time network television with the commercials during the news. I still got a live TV service, and I still am drawn to the networks for major events like football games, Razorback football games. And I gotta still gotta see that local news from time to time. It's still where the game is mostly played, spending money for traditional television advertising. Just as we thought polling was changing because nobody's answering their landline anymore. You're doing pretty well with polling and you're now sending folks a text and directing them to a, to an online questionnaire. Am I right about that? That is correct, yes. Uh, so you and others have found a way to keep, I think for the time being and for the foreseeable future, it's the same old game. You got to raise the most money and you got to get on TV and you got to have some polling. And we found a way, uh, politics hasn't changed that much even as the world is changing remarkably. John Brummett is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and his columns can be found at ArkansasOnline.com. He talks each week with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can hear more from this week's discussion at TalkBusiness.net. This is Ozarks at Large. And guess what? Not only, not only is the militant grammarian here after a summer hiatus, <laughs> she's here in the Anthony and yes. Susan Hoy News Studio. We're yes. far enough away. We're not. Uh, you're in fact boosted. You've got the third shot. I have. Yes. We're both fully vaccinated, yep. and uh, and we don't hang out with sketchy people. <laughs> I don't hang out. Well, actually, I, sometimes I do. So I should. <gasps> take that back <laughs> it's a delight to have you back it, this is i think it was Catherine, maybe late 2019 the last time you and i were both in this room i i think we we did it 
Oh, the last time we did right. it, yeah. When we I think it was during the minute and a half that the yes. pandemic was over. Yes, yes I mm-hmm. think you're right. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're back. What do we got? Kyle, while I was on hiatus last summer, I spent a lot of time on Rhyme Zone, a great website for people who write songs. Have you ever heard of it? No, but it makes sense that it exists. uh, It's really, it's not only good for rhyming. It offers synonyms and words that sound like that and words that begin with that letter. And so it's useful. Sometimes if you're just trying to think of a word, it's good. So anyway, uh, over the years, I've gotten soft on whether words really have to rhyme. Well, aren't there like near rhymes? Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. If the line is funny, I'll rhyme something like meat and streak. You know, it it's oh. not really a rhyme, but in a song that's funny who cares (laughs) i've learned that kind of rhyme is often called a slant rhyme or a near rhyme Uh so today we're going to talk about different categories of rhymes i figured first there are i rhymes e-y-e i rhymes rhymes that through your eyes or words that through your eyes look like they rhyme um for instance catch and watch because they've got that ATCH yeah. at the end. Yeah. The only difference is the first letter. <clears throat> but they are I rhymes because they don't rhyme when you pronounce them. I rhyme in poetry is an imperfect rhyme in which two words are spelled similarly but pronounced differently. So, Kyle, what are the I rhymes that mean to transport and to adore? Move. And love. Yeah, which don't really sound anything at all alike. Well, you've got that long O in move mm-hmm. and the short O in mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why? What about a tree limb and a word for being done? Branch? No. Oh. Uh, old-fashioned, think of the little baby on the, think of this rockabye, rockabye the baby. Treetop, rockabye baby in the tree. Rock about baby right. in the treetop when the bow. Yeah. Okay. Bow and what was the other word? Uh, being done. So it's an O U G H through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, they don't rhyme at yeah, all. Yeah, of course. Through though, thorough, all those yeah. words. I think it was not until right now that I really thought about bow being a branch. Yeah. When you're yeah. a kid, you just yeah, you just assume take, it's it's a word yes. that is in that song. <laughs> yes. Kyle, I know you weren't around in 1943 because even I wasn't. (laughs) But you may know the name of a popular movie starring the canine star Lassie. Lassie. Come home. Yeah, what are those? How are they spelled? C-O-M-E, H-O-M-E, but it's not come hum or come home. Right. (laughs) Yeah, so I rhyme. And what are the I rhymes that mean the sound of mirth and a female offspring? Well, so daughter is the female offspring, mm-hmm. so A-U-G, laughter. Mm-hmm. Laughter and daughter, ooh. Not even close. No, no. So, Kyle, why do words rhyme? What is it about a word that makes it rhyme with another? They sound almost identical. Okay. What, what is it about the structure of a word? Well, it's the last part of the word. Okay. So... The last that, syllable? So, so um, sunk and bank... No, those are not rhymes. Okay, so the end is important. Yeah. But what else is important? The vowels? Yes. Oh, I see, yes. Uh, Assonance means that the vowel sounds are the same. For instance, the A in may and say. 
uh, rhymes are generally at the end of the word lamp and damp. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, so here are a few of the main types of rhymes. Um, end rhymes. Rhyming of the final words of lines in a poem. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder where who you are, where what you, you are. are. What you what are. You are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you are really testing my uh, Who, what, knowledge. where, why, when. <laughs> my knowledge of preschool. Uh, Maybe. Actually, actually, I think it's... How I wonder... I don't think it is what I said. Couldn't yeah. be how, but that's the one that came in. Where? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Why? One of the five W's, yes. not the H. <laughs> and really, they kind of all work. They do. Okay. Uh, th- then there are internal rhymes, rhyming of two words within the same line of poetry. Internal rhyme is often used in song lyrics. Complete mm-hmm. this line from Journeys Don't Stop Believing. Why do you do this to me? <laughs> A singer in a smoky room, the smell of wine and cheap... Perfume. Sure. Room Mm -hmm. and perfume. Right. They rhyme, but they don't look anything alike. Those are ear rhymes. Those aren't eye rhymes. Yes. Yeah. A type looked down upon by good poets, at least according to my research on Google, is the forced rhyme. Ooh, I'm anxious to hear about the forced rhyme. It's a rhyme that is produced by changing the normal spelling of a word Uh, or pronunciation or by changing the normal structure of a phrase. So I'm going to give you an example of the second type, changing the structure of a phrase. If I were to write, whenever we go out and walk, I like to talk to you. Mm. Now rearrange the second line. Whenever, Whenever we go out to walk... To you, I like to talk. With you, I like to talk. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. It, yeah. Which, I mean, it's not how we talk. No, no. But. It does, I mean, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. But, uh, it so happens we had a forced rhyme in a song in our recent Gridiron podcast, but the fact that it was forced helped to make it funny. I was going to say, because yeah. sometimes the Gershwin brothers would do a forced rhyme, yeah. but it, led, it, it lent itself to the creativity. Yeah. Uh, Steve Voorhees played Joe Biden, and he also wrote this line. Did I make a gaffy? Call in Jen Sackey. Exactly. You know what's going on <laughs> yeah. there. And gaff right. is spelled, if you don't know, like right. gaffy. Yes. <laughs> Kyle, my granddaughter just turned seven, and I'm thrilled that she's already a word person. Mm-hmm. A little bit ago, we spent an evening with her. I spent an evening with her playing Hinky Pinky. No? No, I don't know what that is. Uh, I have to interject here that I call the game by its two-syllable name when it actually is Hink Pink. (laughs) So sue me. Okay. So you don't know the game. Hinky Pinkies are word puzzles that use clues to lead to a two-word rhyming solution. For instance, Kyle, what is a bashful insect? Uh... A shy fly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like these. And I think that Will Shorts uses this kind Sound, of a thing. Sounds like something you would do, yes. I bring this up because we, when we played this game for a long time with great fun, I didn't realize I was helping her become a better reader. Uh-huh. According to Scholastic.com, rhyming teaches children how language works. It helps them notice and work with the sounds within words. When children are familiar with a nursery rhyme or rhyming book, they learn to anticipate the rhyming word. Of course. This prepares them to make predictions when they read another important reading skill. Isn't that interesting? It is. As a grandmother, I have to say, I love it when play leads to learning. 
You're not only the militant grammarian, you're a wonderful humanitarian. <laughs> I'm Tanya Mosley. A composer in St. Louis, Missouri, captures the collective grief felt for those lost to COVID-19 through song. Being able to put that together in a way that we can work as a community to grieve was very special and very needed. That's next time on Here and Now. Here and Now, just ahead on KUAF at 1, you can listen on KUAF and through the free KUAF app. And you can listen tomorrow when we preview the fifth episode of the podcast, Undisciplined, produced in conjunction with the Department of African and African American Studies at the University of Arkansas. I gathered a group of young folk and artists and we did a mural at what I call the protest corner on Dixon and College. And it has still not been defaced. You know, we actually thought it could be at some point. It did generate a variety of uh, outlook for and against, you know, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter and all that. But it hasn't been defaced. Art, Black Lives Matter and much more. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7, and on your schedule when you subscribe to our free Ozarks at Large podcast. Oh, and the full fifth episode of the Undisciplined podcast, produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore, available tomorrow, like the Ozarks at Large podcast, wherever you already get your podcasts. Guitarist, singer, songwriter Gary Clark Jr. comes to the Walmart Amp on Saturday, October 23rd. Fusing blues, rock and soul music with elements of hip-hop, Clark's most recent release, This Land, earned three Grammy Awards, including Best Contemporary Blues Album. Tickets available at amptickets.com or 443-5600. This is KUAF 91.3. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Gentry. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. We're online at KUAF.com. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Daniel Carruth, who delivered us the information about flu shots in Arkansas, and our militant grammarian, Catherine Sherald. Additional content today provided by the news staff at KUAR, Public Radio for Central Arkansas and Little Rock. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We're back tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF and at KUAF.com and the KUAF app. Thanks for listening. I'm Kyle Kellums.